Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Uh, we get to continue with the sermon series that Nick started last week, Divided and United, what we're doing for the next four weeks, uh, not coincidentally before we come to an election, is we're looking at why our society and increasingly the church is more divided than ever, and how we find the road back to being united. And so today what we're going to do is talk about, um, we're going to talk about subdivisions, subdivisions. Most of us live in a subdivision. You live in a subdivision. I live in a subdivision. What was once, what is a subdivision? It's when a a large plot of land, a farm for instance, gets uh, sliced up into many smaller parcels. And you'll see a plat. Sometimes it looks like this. You'll be like, oh, that used to be a big park. And now it's 56 sliced up homes. If you have at least one cul-de-sac, then it qualifies as a subdivision. That's not a real rule. I made it up. When we moved here to Bowling Green, um, July 2016, uh, we were started looking. We were kind of sure we wanted to be here in May. You guys were welcome. You know, you wanted us to have us. We're like, okay, now we can look for a house. And so we, we, from a distance, from 1,400 miles away, we started looking for a house. And there were three options available to us. And one was um, in the Bird Streets. One was in Westgate, which is what backs up to Winter Garden Park there. And one was on South Main Street. Now, when I say those things, if you've been around Bowling Green for any amount of time, you know what those three things mean. If I say Bird Streets, you know what that means. You're thinking two-story, siding, young families. If I say Westgate, you're going uh, ranch-style, brick homes, a lot of empty nesters. If I say South Main Street, you're going craftsman details, probably uh, a lot of students around you. And you'd be generally right. Like, there's exceptions to all those rules, but generally, each of those neighborhoods feels a certain way. And how did you know all of that? Because subdivisions have a certain sameness built in, don't they? Like attracts like. People sort of congregate with with people that are like them, whether that's socioeconomically or or any other way. People sort of find their way into places where they're the same people. And, And so somebody will have like a, somebody is sitting here going, well, it's not all like that. Yes, there are nice, there's the nicest houses in every neighborhood, right? But they're still from the same general cut, the same general class. So you can go into a house and be like, well, this one has better finish out, or this one has slightly more square footage. But at the same time, most things in the same subdivision are going to kind of be the same. Which usually means that the people who live there represent some sameness, don't they? Like a middle-class neighborhood is full of middle-class people. And you know that going in, and, and that's like... Oh, well, this seems pretty obvious, right? What's your point? In seeking uniqueness from the whole, we move into subdivisions, which still provide a sense of sameness and familiarity to us, don't we? Like, like, go to this next slide, Dwayne. You think all those houses look the same on the inside? No, but yeah, right? No, like, they got this tile, and they chose wood, and they're going with carpet, and, and, oh, they put a pool in the back. Okay, they got a trampoline. I like that. It has one sub, it has a cul-de-sac, so it counts. But from the air, you look at it, and it's like, well, it's probably, they're probably mostly the same, right? They were built at the same time, probably by the same builder, and they're mostly the same. And this is where we start kind of creating a thing in our, in our minds. And we want to create a thing here because this is sort of what our faith ends up looking like. 
We also have this other thing that when we think of neighborhoods, we think of an aspirational quality. Like if you lived in a slightly uh, lesser, lower socioeconomic neighborhood, you look at that neighborhood and you go, ooh, I kind of want to live there. We have this aspirational quality because we, we usually want to move, partly because we need a different space. Oh, we're out of room. Or, but partly we want to move because we kind of want to be like the people who live in that other subdivision. We kind of want to be, or I want to move out of subdivision, I, wanna ha- I want some land. Kind of because I want to be those people who have land. Or I want to be seen like them. So if the place you live is populated with people mostly like you, the place that you dream of living is populated with people you mostly want to be like. It's a generalization, but again, generally related. So this is an identity thing. We're back on identity this week. Nick talked about it last week. And we unite around uh, those who we aspire to be like. We, we divide when the unifier disappears. So if your main un- the main reason you got into your neighborhood was a family stage or socioeconomics, when those change... We no longer have children. We want to move to the empty nester neighborhood. Or our socioeconomic situation has changed. We will move into a nicer socioeconomic bracket. The unifier, when the unifier changes, we move on to another thing. We subdivide even from there. This is what Nick talked about last week when he pointed out at this pond that these these, uh, kids lived on. Remember he said, if you missed it, basically uh, the family, the mom and dad, had bought all this land, this beautiful pond, and they had their children all build houses along this pond. And as long as the parents were alive, there was this unifier, and all of the children lived there in in general harmony. And as soon as the parents died, all of the differences came out. Like, the unifier was gone. And this is a true story, that these children, within six months, literally all sold their homes and moved because there were too many disagreements on how to live on the land. The one unifier was gone, and all of a sudden, subdivisions showed up. All of a sudden, differences became real, and the division showed up, and they all sold and left it. And the unifier was gone. The reason we're talking about neighborhoods is because I think we need helpful illustrations as we go through this. And and neighborhoods are physical. You've lived in them. You feel them. And what we feel today, whether you can feel it right now or not, we feel a profound disconnection. There's a Florida neighborhood I want to show you. Look at that one. It's pretty from the space station, but those are disconnected lives. Everybody gets a water view, right? Everybody has, oh, we're, oh, it's a water lake view. And it's, I don't know, what alligator view is what it looks like. But it's profoundly disconnected. And they all end up in these cul-de-sacs. And they all end up in these, these beautiful lines from space. But in real life, in real time, these are profoundly disconnected. And one street separated from a canal from another street can have a radically different feel. And so you can move and stratify. And everything is subdivided from everything else. And this is a lot of, I think, what we feel like in Christianity not to mention in our larger society, we are uh, sort of the same, but trying to be really different. We're sort of aligned on some things, but we really would like our space, please. Being divided and being united is largely up to who you follow. And we tend to build our identity on things that are less tangible than, uh, than we used to. Political affiliation, preferred leaders, socioeconomics, maybe even slivers of theology. We build our identity on these, these kind of little nuanced things, and we lose sight of the main thing. And so this is what we're talking about as Paul addresses the church at Corinth. He's going to tell them, you're going through the same stuff as future people. Verse 10, I appeal to you, he says, brothers and sisters, in the name of Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some, of, uh, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. 
Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul is, is, let's break this down. Paul is basically looking at the early movement of faith, the early movement of the church of Jesus. And what's happening is people have picked their flavor of which person they want to follow from that movement. Paul or Apollos, Cephas, Christ. And people have kind of chosen their flavor. They've chosen their leader. They chose the one with the charisma that matches their, their idea. They, they've started to subdivide, haven't they? And, and who you follow matters. So we say this, who you follow matters. We were uh, driving to Kentucky this week. I was on a backpacking trip with some friends. Uh, two cars full of uh, men that didn't smell as bad on the way there as they smelled on the way back. And the, the first car is a black truck, and the second car is mine. I'm driving the second car. We're not, like, following each other. This is not the idea. I know where I'm going. They know where they're going. I said, we'll see you there. We'll probably go slower than you because I don't want to get a ticket. So well, this is the thing. And, and yet, you know, we're, like, halfway to Dayton, and I'm still following this black truck. And I'm like, okay, I guess we are, we're going to do that thing where we just kind of drive together and make our way together. And, and I look down, and we're having a conversation in our car, and I look back up, and the truck, this black truck is exiting I'm like, this is, we're four and a half hours from where we're supposed to be. This is not where we exit, but okay, maybe something's wrong. Maybe they got a flat tire. Maybe they need something. Let's exit with them and just see what the problem is. Let's see if we can be a help, and if not, we'll get back on the road. This truck exits. We're exiting. We make our way, come up to the stop sign at the, uh, at the intersection there, and I notice that this truck I've been following off the highway has Oregon license plates. It's just a different black truck, you know? And yet I, I was following this black truck, and I, you know, mindlessly, I took my eye off the thing, and a black truck came and got in between me and the other black truck, and then I followed this black truck. And who I followed took me off my path. And had I not noticed the license plate, I would have kept following this truck. Had I not been aware of the fact that I'm following the wrong thing, I would have followed the wrong thing for a long time, and that could have ruined a lot of things. And we have to be careful because who we follow matters. And some of us have been following the wrong truck for a while, but we haven't noticed yet. And we're further and further and further off the path. And we're like, this doesn't feel like the way, but I guess it's the way because I'm following this truck. And, and by the time we notice, it's too late. Following something, the lesson is, following something similar to the original is not the same thing as following the original. Following a truck that looks like the other truck is not the same thing as following the truck I'm supposed to follow. We'll come back to this. Humans, uh, subdivisions, housing, differences, style, clothing, we're, we're wired for uniqueness, aren't we? We all kind of want to be unique. We don't, you, you didn't show up here all wearing the same jumpsuit. You know, we don't have a uniform as a society. We're not North Korea. We don't have to, you know, we're, we want to be different. We want to be unique. Show me your style. What are you wearing? It's fall. What do we get excited about the fall? Guys get excited because we're finally aware, allowed to wear our three flannel shirts over and over. Ladies, the fall wardrobe is out. I saw someone this week, and their shirt said pumpkins and sweaters and Jesus and blessings, and I'm like, I don't know about that. She was excited to put on her fall sweater. We desire uniqueness, and we want that uniqueness to be noticed. 
my style, my decoration, my strengths, my skills. And this is beautiful. This is not a bad thing. God created us uniquely. God wants us to shine in the unique way he created us. You are precious. You are unique. You are special. But Paul says, be careful here. Because what starts out as a descriptor of some unique aspect of us becomes the definer of us. We want to be unique, and sometimes that leads us to following the wrong thing and following a lesser thing, to to picking a Cephas or an Apollos or an Apollo instead of a Jesus, because we kind of want to be unique. I want to be different. I don't want people to see that I'm different. So like the family in Nick's picture, they started as one thing, and they all wanted to be different. They had their own ideas, and they became subdivided, and then they were just divided. They were no longer the thing they started as. Their unity crumbled under the weight of their uniqueness. And so as a culture, we value independence and uniqueness, and that's fine as long as it doesn't get in the way of the thing that we value as created beings that follow Jesus Christ, which is Christ is first and supreme and most, and everything else falls under that. Paul looks at the people of faith and says, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? Because I feel like he gave us some real clear marching orders, and now we're all following different people, going different directions. Why are we subdividing if Christ didn't subdivide us? You follow Apollos, you follow Cephas. Paul is saying, I thought we followed Jesus. And there's these quarrels among you, and it's because we don't follow Jesus anymore. We're following all these other things. Go back to the beginning. Before the subdividing, there was just followers of Jesus. When you read the Gospels, it's just Jesus and the people who choose to follow him. And some would start to follow and be like, ah, I can't do this. Ah, it's a lot of, oh, it's too hard. Sell everything, ah, I'm not going to do that. And so there's this kind of ebb and flow of, of Jesus' followers, of people that have said, yeah, I, I'm going to hang with Jesus. And then early Christianity, in the first days, it was just, it was actually looked at as a sect, a subset of Judaism. Oh, these are those Christians who think that, that Jesus was the Messiah. Yeah, they, they practice, they go to sanctuary, they read the Torah, they, they, but they follow the Jesus. Then there were some early splits. Then Rome acknowledged Pauline Christianity in 313 AD, and and Catholicism kind of gets really some fuel. 1054, there's this thing called the Great Schism in the Christian church, where East and West, Byzantine East and Roman Catholic West split in 1054 over some political things and some ideological ideological things. One of the, like, people go like, why did they split, though? One of the issues was, can you use unleavened bread in communion? Because, I mean, like one of the main issues from the entire church that followed Jesus splitting into two distinct was, should we use leavened bread or unleavened bread? Can we use like wonder bread or do we need tortillas? Was the, the basic idea when you really back out. And there was such disagreement over this and other issues like it that the church splits into East and West. So you know Eastern Orthodox people Russian Orthodox, Romanian Orthodox, you know Eastern Orthodox people? Their Eastern Orthodoxism, split off from your friend who goes to St. Al's, dates back to a thousand years previous to here when they were arguing over what kind of bread can be served. And we go, ah, that's dumb. I mean, come on. So you show up here next week, and I have pizza and Pepsi on the table for communion. Pepperoni pizza, too. Some of you would leave. Some of you would go, yeah, no, I'm not, that's not the place I'm going to go. I'd come up here, I'd be like, no, no, the the point is the elements are irrelevant. It's the, it's the practice of remembrance. It's the, it's the practice of being together in communion with Christ and remembering a sacrifice. It's about that. The whole point of changing the elements is to remind you it's not about the elements, it's about Jesus. 
And somebody would say, yeah, that's a great idea. I'm never coming back. You're disparaging the sacrament. You're sullying something sacred. You might even be right. I know this because we did this at the previous church I was at. Wedding cake and grape juice or pizza and pop. People said, I can't go there anymore. Okay? We, what would we have? After next week, after pizza communion, we would have what a minor split, wouldn't we? Some of you would go, I can't go there anymore. I have to go somewhere else. And we would have lost sight because of my bad decision, frankly. And then our petty differences, we would be split. This happened over and over and over again in church history. On major scales, and it got worse and it got worse. If you had to guess how many denominations currently exist in the world, Methodists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Catholics, if you had to guess how many Christian denominations there were in the world, your guess is way low. I'm just going to tell you. Get a number in your head. Just get the number in your head, all right? Are you ready? You got your number? Okay. 40,000. Yeah. Hundreds in the United States. Hundreds in the United States. 40,000 and growing worldwide. Because every time some small church in the middle of Iowa has a thing where the pastor serves pizza for communion, and they split into two, and they're like, well, we're no longer part of the United Iowa Church of Christ. We're now part of the United Iowa Unleavened Church of Christ of non-pizza bread people. And then you now you've got two new denominations, and you've got a new bishop, and, you got, and it, just, it, just, and you, it changes, and all of a sudden we've got 40,000 denominations. Kind of a problem. If you want to get a picture of it, I, I purposely chose a slide that you don't want to see, that you can't read, that is terrible and awful. There it is. Great schism is up at the top. Okay, about 1054, we got a great schism, east and west, and then out of Roman Catholicism becomes everything. This happened, then that happened, then these people, then those people, then Calvin showed up, and then Luther showed up, and then they were like, but wait a minute, and it just keeps going. Hey, Booth came. What did Booth do? Salvation Army. That's cool. Except then they were, they were too liberal. They're not good. So then we're going to do this. But then they were too Pentecostal, so we're going to do that. And over and over and over, it splits and splits and splits and splits and splits. So what was some beautiful, bountiful farmland, right? When the church was some beautiful, bountiful farmland is now subdivided into 40,000 minor parcels, each with their own flavor and their own wallpaper and their own privacy fence. The beautiful, bountiful farmland has become crabgrass and privacy fences. And that's okay. God's going to use it. Kingdom is not disturbed by our meddling. God's going to use it. And yet, when that happens within us, when that happens amongst us in a more minor level, within our body itself, within our little crabgrass frontier, when we have those divisions, well, he's been thinking things bad, and they voted this way, then we start subdividing within ourselves, and our unity disappears, and when our unity disappears, our power disappears. People love to split up and show uniqueness. We get questions all the time. A lot of people are sweet, and they'll ask questions before they show up, and they'll say, hey, what is your view on this? Or how, what does this church think about abortion? What does this church think about LGBTQ? What does this church think about this thing? What about marriage? What about the, and, and we get those questions, and we just send them the statement of faith, and we go, here's what the church statement of faith says. If you have more questions, let us know. And then people will, will also ask, what about music style? Like, if I show up, are you, do you guitars? No. Do you do hymns? Will you do hymns if I show up? Does the preacher wear jeans? Okay, are they skinny? You know, it's like a, I'm always waiting that second email, and you're like, 
No, they're fine. They're okay. They weren't skinny when I bought them. Um, people, people have left. This church, church is all over. People leave over all of these things. Hey, they changed the way they do music. We're out. I've told you this story about the church that died because the people were unwilling to put music on screens and they wanted to have it on paper hymnals and they refused and they were fighting and someone of this and someone of that and the church eventually just died because they couldn't decide how to display the words of the songs they were going to sing. Projectors? You know, the overhead projector who was in charge of the slides here back in the 80s? Somebody. Now you have these projectors, no back to paper. What should we do? This church is too reformed. It's not reformed enough. Somebody's in here going, wait, wait. Should I be asking him what reform? What does that even mean? People left because we had masks in church. And then people left because we didn't have enough masks in church. Like the same week, we'd lose two families, and one said it's because you have masks in your church, and the other said it's because you don't mandate masks in your church. And I'd go, all right. We love to split over little things, don't we? Paul is addressing this division. Paul is addressing the growing factions in the early days. Some fellow preacher, some follow this preacher, some prefer this method, and Paul says what? For Christ did not me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And then he says this, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What does he mean by that? He means that it isn't, I didn't show up that you would think I'm some sort of like theological wizard and follow me. I didn't show up so my eloquence would draw you to follow me. I showed up to point you at Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. And so when he was going through that whole weird thing about I didn't baptize, I'm glad I didn't baptize, he's saying because people have unnaturally and kind of unknowingly started to associate with the baptizer or start associating with the teacher instead of associating with the Savior. And we've built these little sub-gods, these subdivisions within what was to be a unified body of Christ. So Paul says, if it's about me in any way, my intelligence or my eloquence, then I'm emptying the cross of its power. So let me be very clear. I can't save you by my sweet words or my great illustrations. Jesus saves you in nothing less. It's become about me, Paul says, and I'm incapable of saving you. Our modern church is this way, and we have to be real careful because we are modern Americans. We love celebrity. We love celebrity. And our church capital C American church has been infiltrated by the grossness of celebrity. It's always a thing. It's all, I mean, you see, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, it's always been a thing. We're attracted to leaders. We're attracted to, th- but, but more than ever, we're a celebrity-obsessed culture. And Christians don't want to get left out on that, so we're like, well, let's build our own celebrities. And when they fall, oh, that hurts. Well, I'll pick a different one. Or when the celebrity goes astray, thousands go with them. It's become a phenomenon, really, the last 30 years as, as churches have gotten bigger. Digital life has made it even easier for people to reach more people. Who do you follow? John Piper, or Tim Keller, or Tony Evans, or Lisa Turkhurst, or Jenny Allen, or Beth Moore, or T.D. Jakes, or Mike Todd, or Stephen Furtick. Who do you follow? Cephas, or Apollos, or Paul? Following something similar to the original is not the same as following the original. Like, 
Like, if you came here because I was the preacher, I'd say you should probably not come here. Because this is not about who the preacher is. Now, if that's just like, hey, no, I love everything about the community, and I, I do like your preaching, but it's not, like, don't come for me. Because I'm the interim, meaning I'll, I won't be here one day. And there's no interim on my title, but everybody's an interim everything as we lead. We have interim elders, we have interim teachers, we have interim parents. We are all in charge of something until we're not anymore. So I, I'm here until I'm not here. We're here for the community. We're here for the mission. We're here because we're aligned on our statement of faith. We follow Jesus. We're here for Jesus. And anything less than that will lead us astray. Anything less than that will lead us down a path. Anything less than that, we're exiting at the wrong exit, following the wrong truck. Because if you were here to follow me and I flip out and say some things that are heretical and you start believing those things, then six years from now, we're all off in the wrong pasture together. And so you say, oh, I don't like that. I follow Jesus. What did you say? We need people who follow the original, not who follow people who follow the original. Following Jesus and being discipled by another, let's make two, a distinction there, right? Being discipled does not mean I follow that person in the, in the capital F sense of I'm following this person. Someone can disciple you, and you're following Jesus together is what's happening. So following Jesus and being discipled by another is different than following the other who's following Jesus. And you've got to be so careful. This is what Paul is saying. We're getting lost. You think he's saying Apollos was a bad dude or Cephas is a bad dude? No, those are good leaders in the young church. They're not Jesus. When we start to identify less with Jesus and more with people who explain Jesus to us, or even worse, those who we simply aspire to be more like, this is aspirational followership that we do, then we get off. If you're on social media, check who you follow on social media. It's a really easy kind of illustration for you. Check who you follow on social media. You amplify the voices you want to be more like, and you end up muting those you don't, right? We follow people because we want to be like them in some way. I admire this about them. She's attractive or humble, and she's low-key famous, and she kind of seems down to earth about it. Or he's got authority and leadership acumen, and he's really a pretty ascendant. kind of want to be part of that. Like, it feels good to be associated with someone who's doing something important, big. Someone smart or holy or famous. Our admiration then becomes our followership, and if we're not careful, we're not paying attention, we just happen to exit with them. And our admiration becomes followership, and it can never be that way. Remember Rob Bell? If you're old enough to remember Rob Bell, Rob Bell was a young superstar of the evangelical church. He had an incredible church up in Michigan, was it like one of the best teachers I've ever heard. I still send people a teaching he gave on Revelation, 54-minute long sermon. I hate 54-minute long sermons. I'm about to give you one. And he goes on Oprah and says, I'm not sure you need to follow Christ to go to heaven. I think love, is, I think love wins. And he just gave up. He changed, and he took a thousands of people with him who went, yeah, maybe he's right. Let's go that way. Jen Hatmaker on sex and gender. I miss her, too. I was, on a, I was at a conference. I was on a panel, and she was the main speaker, and I was the panel. And I was like, she is amazing. We're talking about justice and reconciliation, and, and she was incredible. I miss her. Pastors, worship leaders, Robbie Zacharias, Bill Hybels. Following them and not Jesus is where we adopt bad theology. 
when we follow celebrity Christians, when we follow anything less than Jesus, we begin to expose ourselves to the potential of adopting a bad theology, to adopting a heretical position, to following somebody who isn't Jesus. And when we follow somebody who isn't Jesus, we have to expect that anybody who isn't Jesus is going to make some mistakes along the way. We end up wanting to please the culture. We slowly abandon the Bible. Why? modern world, progressive world, nobody wants their friends and family to think that they're backwards or regressive or bigoted. Nobody wants that shame. And so we naturally sort of gravitate to those who somehow soft pedal the message, who somehow kind of skirt around the issue, who somehow just don't do the hard things, don't say it the hard way. They just, yeah, you know, love wins. Paul says in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew and then the Gentile. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he said. We're so worried about the shame of my neighbor who might think I'm a little bit regressive in my beliefs because I still follow a Jewish peasant from 2,000 years ago, and what he said to be true, I still claim to be true. And we're worried about that. And we're a little bit ashamed about that, and we end up going, uh, uh, mm, mm. and it's one degree at a time, and all of a sudden we live way out in left field. Paul says, I'm not worried how Jesus makes you feel about me. Who's the subject there? Like, like he, who's, who's the center of that sentence? I'm not worried how Jesus makes you feel about me. I'm worried about how Jesus feels about me. I don't care about how you feel about me as a result of me following Jesus. I just want the God of the universe to see that my obedience and my loyalty and my worship is for him alone. Anything less than Jesus is about self at the end of the day. Back to uniqueness. I'm special. Look at my flavor, though. Look at my little sliver. I'm different than them. I'm not like them. It's a little bit about aspiration. I, I'm, I'm better than you think. I'm making it. I'm going to be somebody. And what we do is we abandon the kingdom of heaven, and we take on the kingdom of self, and we subdivide Jesus to suit our desires. And why do we fall into this trap? Eugene Peterson says, the fundamental mistake is to begin with ourselves and not God. God is the center from which all life develops. When we begin with self and not God, we end up making a lot of mistakes. So we end up reading the Bible through a modern cultural lens. We go, that seems regressive. Instead of reading the culture through a biblical lens and going, that seems off from truth. We lead with our feelings and our aspirations. We lead with our shame and our cultural desire to fit in instead of with God's design and Jesus' teaching. Apollos, Cephas, they were good men. They weren't Jesus. So our job is to return our focus to Jesus, to be able to boldly say, I follow Jesus, nothing less. Then we get to ask the question, what pleases Jesus? What reinforces his reputation as the narrow gate, as the way, the truth, and the life? What represents and, and, and builds up Jesus as the Savior? If we can adopt that posture, we can then be freed from how my neighbors feel. We can focus on how the God of the universe feels. And it doesn't mean we don't love our neighbor when we disagree. It doesn't mean we don't sacrificially give our lives for our neighbor even when we disagree. That's what Jesus does. But it means we know who we serve and why we serve him. And when we get off from the line of Jesus, we are getting off of the line because we want something for ourselves, whatever that is along the way. 
Sometimes it sounds harsh to people. Paul lays it out to the Galatians in Galatians 1, 6 through 10. He says this, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul says, if you want to please people, you can't follow Jesus. Because no man can serve two masters. If you're here to win the approval of the culture, you're going to follow culture. You can't serve Jesus in culture. You can't build your kingdom and God's kingdom. Following anything less than Jesus divides us. He says, if an angel from heaven shows up and preaches a different gospel, he's under God's curse, an angel. So when we are listening to some other preacher, and there's so many great ones out there. When we're listening to worship songs, there's so many great ones out there. We're reading somebody's great book or their blog or whatever. There's so much great stuff out there. Our first and only filter has to be, is this in line with Jesus and the God's word? If it's not, then it's garbage. I don't want it. I don't want anything to do with it. If it is, awesome. Thank you, Lord, for revelation. Thank you, Lord, for somebody who can explain that to me. Thank you, Lord, for a faithful person who can help me understand your goodness. But we have to be so careful because all of these little subdivisions will divide us. Following anything less than Jesus will divide us. And Paul says, when we accept a lesser gospel, we're under the curse. Lesser is how you get to 40,000 denominations. Lesser is how faithful people follow leaders into the abyss. Lesser is how we, the unified body of Christ, the bride of the risen Savior, lesser is how we become subdivided. And we whisper about other people three rows over. Did you see the sign in their yard? Did you hear what they spent? Did you hear what they teach their kids? May we be united as a people who follow Jesus and nothing and nobody less. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for a unifying cross. Thank you for a resurrection and what it means about where we find life. Thank you for releasing us from the striving, from rescuing us from the kingdom of self. God, where we're convicted in this, and this was convicting for me too. Father, where we are convicted, I pray that you soften our hearts to you and you alone that you show us the places where we're following anything less than you, where we've given some of ourself to something other than you. God, let every decision and every relationship and every belief, political stance, neighborhood affiliation, let those things be first filtered through you and your word. Father, find us faithful to do hard things, to live counterculturally, to live upstream if necessary. Father, find us following Jesus and then living like Jesus. Give us the courage to live counterculturally and still sacrificially 
to live loving nothing less than you, but then loving our neighbors with everything we have. God, give us the courage to both chase you with everything we have and then to use everything we have to chase our neighbors and bring them to you as well. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. We rest in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon for our live Sunday service at 9.30, 11 a.m. or 11 a.m. online. Thanks for listening.